You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Kevin Thompson and Perry Zern, editors of a newly translated collection of writings by Michel Foucault in the Prisons Information Group titled Intolerable, published by University of Minnesota Press in late 2021. Kevin Thompson teaches in the Department of Philosophy at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, where he publishes widely in 19th and 20th century European thought and is the author of Hegel's Theory of Normativity. Perry Zern teaches in the philosophy department at American University in Washington, D.C., and has written extensively on themes of curiosity, prison abolition, Foucault's critical theory, and is the author of the book, Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry. Perry and Kevin, thank you for making the time to be here. How are you? Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. We're doing well. So let me start off with what's really uh, the broadest possible question, but I think is always an interesting one, is much uh, an autobiographical question uh, to both of you, uh, intellectual autobiographical, but also in terms of your own feelings and, and motivations as, as people. Uh, how did you come to this project? And I mean that practically, you know, how did you come to these materials, come to assemble them, come to present them as, as they are? Um, and also in terms of your own individual, which are very different, of course, intellectual journeys, you know, what sort of things drew you to the project in terms of curiosities, passions, commitments, interests, and so on. And I ask that because there are lots of ways in which one writes a single authored book in order to draw attention to your own thinking. But in the case of editing, right, we are, it's really one of these, uh, passion projects that I think comes from really distinct places. And so I really wanted to hear just broadly how you all came to this project. Kevin, you want to take that first? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. So the chronology actually works out probably better that way. Um, so I came to Foucault and, and the prisons information group, which are called the Jeep. We call them by their French acronym. Um, uh, from an interest in Foucault, broadly speaking, I've been interested in Foucault for years, uh, and uh, particularly about Foucault on the question, this came really out of working on a rent in a lot of ways, uh, on the question of judgment. And so I, I wanted to see, you know, beyond the histor- histories that Foucault had written, I wanted to see him actually engaged in making political judgment and what were the terms of that and how did that operate? What was the grammar of it? That sort of thing. And, you know, if you're reading the biographies, the the longest uh, sustained effort, which he really participated in and was actually creative of, uh, was the Jeep. And so that took me to that material. And my first pass at the material was fairly, you know, basic and superficial, ultimately, right? It was, I looked at the manifesto, I looked at the first uh, pamphlet they produced, and I read about the others and sort of gathered what I wanted to think about that. And that was enough to really begin the, the journey of thinking about Foucault on the question of political judgment. And so I wrote a paper about that and delivered it and those sorts of things. And uh, we were having conversations one year at the Foucault Circle uh, about doing a text 
um, seminar at the next Foucault Circle, the next, the following year. And we were, you know, throwing around the idea, well, what are we going to do it on? And I said, well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of material in this Jeep archive that we really don't talk about terribly much because it's not well known for, for one, uh, for one reason. And also it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, inaccessible, uh, in other, other reason. And so, um, I propose that we, you know, put together a collection of that material, do the translation of it so we can make it widely available to the Foucault Circle people and, um, and have a discussion of that sort of pre, um, distribute it and have a discussion of that. And that's when Perry came in. And, and pretty quickly after we began that project, we realized that I thought initially it would be a fairly small thing, right? That at best we would have a collection that would go maybe into a Foucault studies type journal or something like that. Um, and pretty quickly it began to expand. We put out a, an initial version of it for the Foucault Circle and had a, a wonderful uh, tech seminar uh, on this uh, in connection with actually, we were holding it in Buffalo that year. So we actually did a um, tour of Attica uh, just before we did the tech, tech seminar. So it was actually quite nice to have those in conjunction with one another for all sorts of reasons. And um, so that worked really well. But then we, you know, Paradise, as we began to talk about this, it was pretty clear that it needed to be a much larger selection. We didn't, I don't think at that point, I'll let Perry speak to this. We didn't think at that point we knew it was going to be 430 pages worth of a larger collection. We still thought it would be, you know, bigger, but maybe a larger like journal volume type thing. Uh, but we just became convinced that if we were going to do justice to the archive, uh, both of us had been to Emec uh, and went through the archive meticulously. We realized that, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that needs to be uh, brought into the context and really uh, uh, made known to tell the story. And we're only telling one, you know, uh, uh, best, a couple of moments in this story. Uh, even though the group was fairly short, it only lasted from 1970 to 1973. Um, it's really, there's a ton of material to deal with. So that's how I grew into this 430 page uh, thing uh, that eventually uh, took forever. The pandemic slowed it down, of course, uh, but uh, eventually saw the light of day and we couldn't have been happier. So, I, yeah, I think I'm glad that you mentioned the page count because it's a hefty book. And I think that, you know, so the question of sort of, you know, what, what commitments and passions got you to the project, I think is a really important question because it's not publishing a 40 page pamphlet in yeah. a journal. Right? Yeah. Perry, how about you? Yeah, I think at the time I was, um, at the time that Kevin kind of approached me about the project, I was uh, working on my dissertation, I believe. And um, I was a couple years into the PhD program, and in general, I was I was I was already interested in language. So I remember a friend of mine saying, asking me, you know, well, you do political philosophy, right? And at the time, I said, no, I just do, you know, this like Derrida, like let's just think about language, and that's part of what got me into studying French to begin with, uh, and, and working in the French language. So it's just a love of words. So that was already on the table, a love of words, kind of deep into French in, in general. Uh, but then intellectually, I was very interested in what I understood as the material effects of ideas. So what, what we have happen up in, in our minds, what actually uh, gets put out into the world and how, how does it shape and shift the world out there? But then also how does the world out there shape and shift what happens in our minds? And, the, and that interrelation is really dramatized, I think, in this particular collection or this particular moment um, in Foucault's life and, and in other folks' lives who, who were involved in it, really thinking about ideas of innocence and guilt and how they become things like prisons, but then also how 
the Jeep activism really produced a lot of incredible and informed a lot of incredible theory and um, aesthetic production. So when when Kevin sort of, not that I knew all of that at the time when Kevin brought up the idea, but I said, yes, absolutely. You know, some more time to think about the relationship between ideas and material struggle and and just kind of sink deep into, into language, um, into a linguistic project was for me really exciting. And I think it was, it was, it's suited me because I think one needs to have passion projects that are uh, somewhat adjacent to one's primary project, which uh, during this time would have been the dissertation or the first few, you know, gigs, uh, professional gigs I got. And it was nice to say, no, kind of put the cap on those at, at different points and just open up, open up some dictionaries and open up a text that you say, you know, I can read this, I understand what's going on, but how do I actually capture um, how it feels and the energy behind it. Um, and that was, that was energizing in and of itself. And then the more the project grew, we, um, we really had to bring on another translator uh, in order to make it somewhat timely. I mean, ten, a decade isn't really that timely, but in this sense, why not? Um, but because that's how long it actually took to, to produce. But bringing on Eric Baranek was, was fantastic. It was so nice to have somebody else's ear to the project. Kevin and I had been at it for a while. Um, listening for things and Eric caught things we just, we had, we had blown by and then vice versa, you know, some of his stuff. So um, yeah, it was just, it was, it's one of the, my favorite kind of experiences of collaboration um, as a, as a project. Yeah. I, I mean, I like that about, I, I think that's true, uh, you know, whether it's a doctoral study or after that adjacent projects energy is, is incredibly uh, important just as writers and thinkers you know, that sort of variety. I mean, the, the monofocus of a monograph or of articles um, can be deflating, right? And also, I mean, what strikes me about this project also is, a, you know, I don't know if you all thought about it this way, but just the immense service that comes with the professional service. These kinds of collections of documents essentially produce research, possible research programs for, um, for all of us, you know, anybody who comes across the book. I mean, you know, my own example, uh, you know, previously, I forget the exact title now, but somebody had put out a, a collection of essays by Richard Wright about the Bandung Conference and then a bunch of other documents around it. And it becomes a sort of primary source uh, for all scholars. And this is such an immense project. I mean, so many writing projects can come out of it. And so, you know, there are going to be a lot of us uh, telling you thank you for <laughs> what that brings to us. And thinking about that sort of energy of ideas, um, this may be speculative uh, as, as, a, as a question and answer, but it's one that I thought when I, when I was reading through the project and uh, through the materials uh, published and, you know, being really jarred by it. This is an enormously important event, right, in French intellectual uh, history at a really, really crucial moment. And sort of it made me think about, and it's an open question because I don't have an answer to it. It's, it's So I'm curious what you all think is when we talk about the, the sort of energy motivations and passions of, of post-World War II French philosophy, right? Obviously the fr experience of the French resistance and the sort of mythology of that is huge for people like Sartre and Merleau-Ponty and Beauvoir, but really the formative events, right? The Algerian independence struggle and the way that split politics and values and so forth um, in among French intellectuals 
And then sort of most emphatically in terms of spectacle, the events in May 68. And so when I think of contemporary, or, you know, post-World War II French philosophy, I still call it contemporary. Um, that was a long time ago. <laughs> you know, those two events are the sort of the way, you know, we organize so much of our thinking around that. And I'm curious if you think this forna- formation of the prison's information group, right, Jeep, if you see this as its own kind of transformative moment, or even just what kind of relationship you think this formation has to May 68, to Algerian independence struggle, or is it really its separate event with its own people and its own motivations? Perry, maybe start with you. Yeah, I would just, I would say that it's very clear in the archive itself, the Jeep archive and the writings that surround it, that folks involved are resonating with May 68 and um, the Algerian War for Independence. These things repeatedly and explicitly come up um, as part of the lineage they see themselves um, joining in some sense. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's different in each case. So with um, kind of Algerian struggle, one of the things that um, is marked is how uh, how important the um, Algerian resistance efforts in prisons were among po- incarcerated um, activists and intellectuals. Um, and and folks in the Jeep looking back to that and saying, you know, this matters because it began some kind of improvement in or addressing of the limits of information and the limitations, significant limitations on rights and the essentially the intolerable conditions in prisons. This is where some of that resistance began. And then the claim is that the Jeep is when that really takes root, not just among Algerian um, prisoners, but um, French prisoners in general um, and their resistance to French prisons. So that's, that, and there's this beautiful moment. It's not just that the Jeep saw itself or, or a, a, a precedent of itself um, in that kind of moment of Algerian struggle, but also that uh, formerly incarcerated Algerians were active in some sense in moments of the Jeep. So there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful moment in 1972 when um, there's the Nazi prison revolt happening, which is a revolt that the Jeep was a part of supporting and mobilizing and then kind of uh, publicizing. And not only were formerly incarcerated Algerians who had been part of struggles in prisons before kind of helping to organize the street protest, but they also afterwards um, made a public statement of solidarity with um, the prisoners in struggle there. So that's just a, I'll I'll speak, I guess, to the, some of the um, connection to Algeria, but uh, Kevin, I don't know if you want to dig into May 68. Yeah, so um, I appreciate that, Perry, because it leads directly into this question of what is the significance of May 68 um, for uh, the Jeep. And I think it's huge, right? I think the Algerian struggle is, is definitely part of this, but I think the May 68 is incredibly significant for all sorts of just basic historical reasons. I'll cite a couple of them, which is obviously the Jeep is literally born out of a response to the repression that the May 68 groups, in particular the Gauche Proletarienne, were suffering as a result of uh, that uprising and being blamed right, for that uprising and the threat that yeah. it presented to the to the uh, constituted powers. And um, the, the, the imprisonment of uh, the leaders of the proletarian left um, was incredibly important and formative for the, the Jeep. Daniel Defer, Foucault's long-term partner, 
um, was already active in the Gauche Proletarian, became active around the issue of the imprisonment of their leaders. Initially, that was about the fact that they wanted to be declared political prisoners or separate prisoners. And uh, uh, DeFerre was part of a group that thought the way to proceed about this was to take up what was common at the time, particularly on the Maoist end of things, which the gross proletarian were, were Maoist, largely uh, Althusser's students were leading uh, the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, their view of that was, well, what we need to have, Sartre was involved in this famously, is a popular tribunal. Right, we need to carry out a a kind of people's court, right, version of 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 going through the uh, whether this was a just uh, action or not, uh-huh. and that was their original idea. That that was where DeFair was at. That's where uh, uh, the group was at at that point. Um, he brings that idea to the group of he brings an idea to the group of saying, "Well, look, let's get uh, my partner Foucault involved in this because mm-hmm. Foucault can, was had just." moved to the Collège de France, the uh, highest uh, pinnacle of intellectual, um, uh, 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 in the intellectual realm in France at the time, still to this day. And let's use him as cover, basically, for what we want to do as a kind of imprimatur. Much, much like Sartre was being used by the gauche proletarian, let's use Foucault for this. Well, Foucault says, I'll do it, but I want to be more involved than that. And one of the things I'm proposing, this is at the famous meeting in 19, late 1970s, this is in December of 1970, at his apartment, his Affairs apartment where the where the jeep is formed uh, is let's not do a tribunal actually because a tribunal would be nothing other than a replay of the very juridical logic that I want to call into question that I think is problematic here that will just be playing into the carceral logic itself so straight out of that kind of Maoist um, uh, 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 formative um, uh, groups you get the jeep and the jeep is distinguished by its focus on information not on carrying out a tribunal. And this is really key, right? So DeFerre uh, publishes this statement, we refer to it, and we have it in the in the volume itself, where information is a struggle. Information is the struggle itself. I think that's really, really crucial innovation, but it grows out of the Maoist emphasis that's already there. One of those emphases obviously being this emphasis on inquiry, right? This investigation, uh, that you actually investigate the people that you're talking about. You don't just, this is carrying on, of course, Marx's own practice in his own life, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, it's clearly articulated by Mao and clearly articulated amongst the Maoists that to do political struggle is is always going to feed on um, gathering of the information, gathering of the facts, do investigation, stand out in front of the the plant and find out what the, the, the workers' struggles actually are. And the Jeep brings that to uh, the prison. Right, brings that to the prison. One other thing that I think, I think is of note here, and this just links it up with the other historical context that you were talking about, John, is um, uh, the resistance movement and the Algerian struggle, but certainly the resistance movement, because the other two intellectuals that they recruit uh, to act as a kind of shield or front for the organization, all their material was anonymous, but the, the, the fronting intellectuals, in addition to Foucault, was Jean-Marie uh, Dominac, and uh, Pierre Vidal Mickey, okay. both of whom were involved in the resistance movement. They are resistance affiliated intellectuals. So they, mm-hmm. they bear that lineage over, and that's part of the production that they provided. But Vinil Nakay is, is famous for his anti racism, anti war uh, work in the Algerian struggle itself. So this is you know, clearly linking up that heritage uh, with the everyday activities of resistance now taking place around a, a different center of power, but nonetheless a different uh, question, namely incarceration and imprisonment. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, go ahead, Perry. 
I would just I would I would add there's a lawyer Casimir uh, who's also part of the Jeep um, movement and he was also super active in the Algerian struggle as was Hélène Sixou and she talks about she talks explicitly in the interview in the in the book about the correlation between her work um, it, during the Algerian struggle and and in the Jeep so I do think it is a a lived connection among many of the activists. And we, sh- we should say, John, this is important. Perry didn't highlight this, but this is a credit to Perry, really, uh, because Perry's going to be uh, 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 humble about this. I'll just out him on this and say, <laughs> look, he's the one who got the interview with Sigsu. Sigsu has never actually talked about uh, her own involvement with the Jeep in any kind of detail. Uh, so this interview that uh, uh, Perry was able to secure and, and wonderfully conducted with Sigsu is a real highlight of the volume for precisely that kind of reason. You would not have this kind of lived connections of, oh yeah, we met in our apartment. My kids were playing over here. Uh, uh, insights yeah. into the daily mundane life of of an activist group without that interview. So it's f- absolutely fantastic. And it's credit to Perry. Yeah, we made an exception. It's the one. It's the one piece that isn't actually part of the archive, but <laughs> uh, it helps to expand the reach. I think of the archive. That's right. Well, I love interviews. So, um, you know, I always read those first. It's like acknowledgments uh, in books. I always open to those uh, interviews. You know, they give that sense of, of retrospection. And it is interesting to, to you know, think about meeting in an apartment, you know, sort of small groups and sort of academic as, a, as an imprimatur or shield or cover. Um, kind of unimaginable in 2022, but it's a, it's, that itself is a really fascinating uh, dynamic, especially Foucault making that decision to be involved and the way that transforms uh, a lot of that. Um, you know, I'm just hearing you talk about and, and thinking about this, this sort of small group sort of origins. I mean, it's interesting uh, alongside like the, the birth of negritude was really just in an apartment, right? Of, group of students at uh, University of Paris and, um, um, you know, f- changing intellectual history that way. It's, uh, it does. The, I, I like that thing that highlights those small origins, whether it's just the, the figure of the apartment or, you know, my kids played over there. You know, the, these are human events that aren't, uh, are groups of humans in an apartment, but also groups of humans that, you know, we're trying to respond to these uh, intense moral and political moments as as we've been talking, as you've been talking about of 68, May 68, Algerian independence and French resistance. I mean, putting it in, in that sequence is, um, I think it elevates in both directions, right? It elevates in the sense that I think what these Jeep documents really underscore is the seriousness of the project and how it's transformative of how we think about ethics and politics, uh, nature of the political world, but also, um, you know, seeing it in, in a relationship to these much more mythic and epic moments in French intellectual history. I mean, they've been mythologized by, by, uh, you know, scholars, but also the, the figures themselves, whether it's Sartre and Camus and, and after. But when I think about this formation of Jeep in that context, I wonder what you all think about the, that genealogy of post-World War II French thought, which is often so deeply tied to Algeria, to French resistance, to May 68. You know, do we need to start to, to tell an alternative genealogical story or is this actually just a, a another uh, dimension of that 
genealogical story about French philosophy. And I asked, you know, is it just a continuation or deepening of that, uh, the sort of political and ethical genealogy of, of post-World War II French thought, or is it a different genealogy specifically because as you're, as you both were talking about, you know, this is not, you know, growing out of Foucault is growing out of how Foucault is folded into this project. And so it makes for me this really interesting, you know, idea of recentering a genealogy of post-World War II, post-1970, in this case, French thought around something that wasn't generated in a, in, in a you know, Department of Philosophy hallway, but rather in an apartment where intellectuals were gathered with activists and political radicals. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the direct answer to your question, John, is yes. I really do think this is a different kind of gene- genealogy here for, for a number of reasons. And I'll, I'll, I'll cite just a few. And Perry, please uh, expand upon these or, or add others and, as, you, as you would like. But um, what really seems significant to me, John, is that it's it, for all the connections we just made, and rightly so, to the resistance movement, to the Algerian independence uh, movement, uh, and to... Um, post 68 or may 68 i think that it is it is a it is a kind of eruption right uh of something really different uh and it's what's different about it is not there all you know preset and then just realized this is not you know we try to be really careful about this this is not foucault's vanity project right this is not yeah. uh i foucault have all these ideas about imprisonment and and whatnot and i'm going to take them and see what, how they work out in this test project this kind of case study for my ideas over here that's the furthest exactly. thing from from the from the truth right the, the the archive just doesn't bear out anything like that in fact the further that perry and i got into the archive perry i think can will affirm this the less foucault became important right i mean uh the more you saw, frankly, DeFerre became really important as a, a figure, right, in the in the group. But what really became much more impressive and important was the role of prisoners and former prisoners in the group itself, such that eventually uh, they handed themselves over to the CAP, to the Prisoners Act, uh, Action uh, Committee. Uh, and that was, you know, literally the, the legacy of, of the Jeep itself, uh, which goes on from there, of course. But um, so that's one thing to say here is that this is not Foucault's vanity project. It really was a, a collection of intellectuals, activists, and in, the incarcerated, those who were inside and their families. Um, the other thing to say about it is it I, it, it is an interesting fact that um, in 7071 that this focus on information is so pivotal yeah. in a way that it had not been previously. Um, and that's for a host of reasons. I don't have a singular view about, oh, this came out of this meeting in 1970, erupted out of that. Clearly, this idea, as I mentioned before, was already there about investigations and inquiry. But investigations and inquiry largely in the Maoist circles had had been a kind of seedbed that you used then to do ideological exploration and then critique thereof. Whereas the Jeep was interested not in ideology critique, not in not in in carrying out that particular project, as as valuable as that can be. But Foucault was convinced that look, there's things that are going on in the prison system that we don't know about, and we just need to find out what's going on there. Period. Right? We need to we need to have documentation of that, um, and see that both in its in its most horrendous uh, uh, context, but also in its most supposedly humane. 
context. So the prison of the future is that is is they called their you know the, they investigated in their second uh, pamphlet. So they were interested in let, let's just look at it, what incarcerated life is like. And the interesting thing out of that that grew out of that was, I think, a couple of things. One was that what counts as intolerable, right? What is not livable, is really much more mundane than. We are, you know, confined and restrained and restricted and repressed. Foucault is very clear. That's not ultimately what we learned there. What we learned there from the prisoners was that the problems of their lives, the un- untenable aspects of their lives, were about things like what's the heat and do we have it? Do we have access to newspapers? Can we actually read what's going on outside rather than having it censored, which it was all the time? Can we have connections with our families or not? Do we have visitation rights? Are those being exercised? And a whole host of other things, right? That were that are in the in the in the uh, term that Lisa Gunther, one of our colleagues, has has placed a creaturely politics, right? A creaturely yeah. politics, which I think is really really important for. Uh, that kind of innovativeness at the time. And then the second thing I would say is that they they realized initially that they were fighting for political status for these Maoist leaders, that the Maoist leaders' political status was really not the issue. The issue had to be, what was the condition of every prisoner, common law prisoners, all prisoners? So what was the real conditions of, of incarceration itself? And the only way you could eventually really get to that was to allow the prisoners to speak for themselves. So when Deleuze says, right, famously says, that what we learned was uh, that the closure of representation, as he famously calls it, really means you can't speak for others, right? You have to let them speak for themselves. I think that was a really, really powerful instance and a really, really new invention uh, of this group. And Mark's a real transformative element uh, that, yeah, needs to be part of a different genealogy uh, from which this group, to which this group contributed. But there were many, many other groups. Perry, you can speak to this. I don't want to hold the floor too long, but um, there were many, many other groups that were involved in this this struggle alongside of, and sometimes in contest with, uh, uh, the Jeep as well. So Perry, I'll, I'll turn it over to you at that point. Yeah, so I think if we want... If we wanted to think about this as a particularly mythic moment for French theory and to ask what kind of sensibility it really prompts, which is, I think, the mm-hmm. heartbeat of your question here, yeah, I want to think about its time, its timeliness in, in a couple of the folks' lives. So for Foucault, this happens right after we have the order of things, the archaeology of knowledge, like those sorts of texts. And it's it's between that and then the shift to discipline and punish and the history of sexuality, both um, more concrete, more uh, in thinking about practices and, and engaged uh, material realities. That seems important. Um, for Deleuze, so he's involved in the, um, the Jeep before he puts out Anti-Oedipus, for example. That's important, right? Because that comes out at the end of 1972. And you can see the use of some of his language from Anti-Oedipus earlier on in the Jeep documents. So that this would be some kind of springboard experience before that text and what follows for Deleuze seems important. 
And then with Sik Su, she specifically says that there was a frustration for her um, about the inability of Jeep organizers to think of women as leaders. It was sort of got under her skin enough that it she sees it retroactively as perhaps prompting her involvement um, in feminism, specifically the feminist movement, and establishing the first women's studies center in Europe. Um, that seems important. She also says this is the moment where she met... Um, Ariane Manushkin and and began participating with the uh, Théâtre du Soleil um, in Paris, which she does to this day. So her the specific aesthetic involvement for her in writing for theater begins okay. here. Hmm. So that's you know all of that is interesting. We could tell more and more stories, but um, if this is a different kind of anchor, right? We want to talk about genealogies. We don't want to talk about origins. But if this is a, a place in where things start to hang together and shift for for yeah. these thinkers, what is it? What is it that 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 marks that moment um, as rich? And I do think going back to this emphasis on kind of what's happening in apartments and what's happening among friendships and among just kind of everyday conversations and creaturely needs and uh, community in and outside of prison, I think we can say that there's a there's a there's a moment a foundational poetics to the Jeep um, that informs theory that that preconditions a theoretical move later and that that seems worth worth kind of holding up and, and thinking about more broadly in the midst of saying things like here's a moment of sort of ground up theory or local theory or really being engaged in experimental and tactical um thinking about we should think about public scholarship and what public philosophy and all those things could mean in this context like i think all of that's true um but to think about the poetics here would be would be really rich. And I think it's, if I could just follow up and um, you, Perry in particular, but also Kevin, you know, that, you know, it's so fascinating that you use the word poetics. And then Kevin was just talking about this sort of shift from ideology critique to information. And it's interesting because that, that tendency to think about poetics as a, an ideological intervention but here thinking about poetics as so deeply entwined with information. It's also, for, I mean, it just strikes me as you all are talking about it, that this is, this makes a really interesting way to, to think about poetics and politics that doesn't fold it into ideological critique. And so this idea of information, I'm curious to hear if you all, you know, want to talk about that in terms of poetics, but also just the transformative function of this, this, idea of orienting one's sort of theoretical political intervention and formation of, of, of ideas and discourse around information rather than ideal ideology. I mean, obviously it's not a clean distinction, but nevertheless, a, a reorientation that seems to me to be completely upending when, if we think about genealogies, completely upending this sort of way post-structuralism is cast as unfolding in the 60s and 70s, which is really about discourse, right, outside of information. But now it's sort of putting information at the center of at least one element of post-structuralism. I, I mean, it's a tired term, but just as a shorthand for some of the figures who are at the center of this, Sisu, Deleuze, Foucault, I mean, those are the three of the most important French thinkers, period. <laughs> so... Yeah, I would say, as, as you're speaking, I'm recognized, I'm remembering a moment, I think, in which the informational and the poetic are, are tied together. So maybe I'll share that and then uh, see where Kevin wants to take this. But um, the very first pamphlet, so the Jeep produced a number of pamphlets, which was part of its informational um, tactic, 
right, to get material out. So, but the first pamphlet was um, called an Inves- investigation into 20 prisons, and it was primarily composed of questionnaires, um, responses to questionnaires. And um, some of those were gathered in a number of different ways, sort of you know shuffling questions like bits and bits into prisons and just kind of um, getting them getting them out. But there was one uh, mother who would consistently meet with her son and take in one question per week, something like this. And it, and she would sort of remember his answer and write it down and, and kind of co- collect the answers in, in that sense. But I think, so she's, she's getting the information, right? This is the information activism to get it out. But it's also in this moment of intimacy, of familial visitation of, and what is it, what was it for her to hear her son answer those things? Um, you can't, this isn't purely getting facts. This isn't collecting, I don't know, stuff that's out there, right? But it's yeah. him actually creating an answer and sharing something about his own experience and her hearing that for perhaps the first time in some cases, right? There's something deep that to me, there's, that's where you hear, a, there's a, there's a, and I'm thinking poetics in the sense of, um, Glissant and Moet in here, um, in, in this, in this rich, in, personal, communicative, loving, making moment. Um, so pause there and then kick it to Kevin. Yeah, Pierce, so let, let me just take it in a slightly different direction, the, the notion of poetics, because I think both of these dimensions, what's interesting is how intertwined they are, right? That's what I think is really interesting about this. But you mentioned Manushkin in the theatrical, um, uh, the theater of the, of the sun, the theater de Soleil, um, that I think is really, really interesting here. And we didn't get to include this very much in the volume. Uh, we re- make reference to it. Um, sometimes we make specific reference to it. Sometimes we just you know, put it in with the, the rest. We talk about, you know, that the, the Jeep was, did a lot of typically, typical things that activist groups do, right? They engaged in leafleting and protesting and marches, and they did street theater. Those are not unusual in that regard. But I would highlight the street theater a bit more. Right. And not just the street theater, but the aesthetic dimension of this a bit more, because um, one of the one part of the archive we could not include. So I'm thinking of poetics here in terms of making in this aesthetic sense. Um, one part of the archive we were not able to conclude what include was precisely this uh, dimension, uh, the aesthetic dimension. Um, uh, the Jeep not only put on performances in the street, literally when they were doing uh, leafleting, they would have a street theater making fun of of, of uh, and, and satiring uh, the uh, uh, the reigning powers that be in terms of how they treated prisoners and how they treated uh, the prison system more broadly, uh, and who gets in prison and who doesn't. Right, those sort of classic lines about that. But they also were interested in, and I, th- I just find this really fascinating. Um, in the one hand, documenting what prisoners actually were going through. So ex-prisoners were interviewed, right? Uh, and there was a film made, a document, uh, documentary documentary uh, film made about precisely just the conditions of incarcerated life. And uh, it's, it is overwhelming. If you watch it, it's overwhelming in its detail of the horrors and also the banal uh, forms of suffering that people were going through and still go through in incarceration, right? So that's, that's one part of this. So that's a filmic uh, a dimension of this. But the other one is um, Manushkin uh, and Siksu contributed to this. They put together the trial that some of the uh, rioters were um, uh, went through. They 
gathered the transcripts and put on actually a play of that trial just to expose the this, uh, the idiocy of the trial itself. Uh, and Manushkin had her actors come and, and, and do this. And famously, uh, this is part of the, you know, sort of the, the, the legendary uh, uh, stuff, but apparently this is true, that Foucault and Deleuze played the police officers Right um, in in this wow. in this trial uh, presentation, uh, ironic presentation, right that they would be there, but they did play the police officers, and it's it's a kind of wonderful satire of well, here's what the people who were put on trial were put on trial for. Here's how they were treated. Here's what went on in that trial setting. So I really think that that aesthetic dimension, which again we did not get to include in the volume, it would be 600 pages, 700 yeah. if we started doing that. We had to make decisions, of course, uh, but I do think it's really significant for the way that that intertwines the personal and the political, if we want to use those terms for it, or just life in this broad sense uh, of expressing it in all of its horror and all of its beauty, and also expressing it at the most intimate level. And I will say, as someone, uh, just speaking personally, as someone who cares a lot about the relationship between poetics and politics, um, this is like a, a fascinating sort of turn in, in assessing the significance of, of obviously what Jeep did, but also what it means for us to, to read this book and think about it. Like information, politics, poetics um, makes it a lot harder to, to draw those distinctions and think of poetics as, as merely cultural and then have to argue that cultural politics matter. This is really moving in a very different direction. And I think in, many ways because of this notion of information and opening it up in terms of its potential and uh, the ability to think then about poetics that's not about ideal ideological critique and ideology critique immensely important but this is such a, a fascinating shift and it makes me wonder and so this is a, a sort of next question I mean, one of the things that's uh, is funny about this question is we've been talking really in ways that you all have been talking in ways that decenter Foucault in relationship to what this was was what this um, group was doing and its significance. But I want to bring it back to Foucault, uh, both because Foucault is central to to the collection, but also um, maybe even just thinking of him as an example that one could think uh, more broadly. And that's how we read Foucault after this collection, after we after we encounter these documents and think about the history and dynamics of the movement. Because, you know, over the years, obviously the publication of Foucault's seminars have changed the way we think about Foucault. You know, that's the amazing thing about these the, the, that part of publishing is you get these seminars, whoever the thinker is, in this case Foucault, and you just get to see them as thinkers in motion. But as we all know, all three of us are, are, are professors who teach ideas, right? It's one thing to be thinking and talking in a classroom. Very different. Foucault's setting is different than mine, for sure. But nevertheless, uh, that kind of discursive account of what a thinker is doing and how they're in motion and what this project allows us to see, which is, which is to see the figure Foucault embedded in a political movement that he is not the motivating force behind or even necessarily at the center. But the suggestion that you all have had and certainly is in the documents is we need to read Foucault differently or we need to read him in this frame, not just in terms of the lectures at the college and how they you get to see him first tapping into this idea or that idea. And I think just to underscore it, 
this is such a significant moment in Foucault's own development because it's directly between archaeology of knowledge and discipline and punish, right? Other works too, but those those two, that's that's not a, a random part of Foucault's career. This, the, the, the shift between those two works is a shift in, uh, in an entire way of thinking in a post-structuralist vein or however one wants to, to periodize and categorize Foucault. So really, you know, do you think we should read Foucault differently in these writings? And just as even a thumbnail sketch, so where do you see that difference going? Kevin, maybe start with you. I'll I'll, I'll take that, a shot at that first. And um, so I mean, I'm I'm always for simple answers. So the simple answer to is yes, right? To this question is yes. Uh, we should read Foucault differently. Uh, I came to this material with with interest in Foucault. I leave this material with interest in Foucault and 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 insights about Foucault. But obviously, those have been deepened and broadened and, and embedded now within a broader context. So I appreciate the, that we have tried to de uh, center and you're you're receptive to that to, that we've tried to decenter uh, Foucault's role here, but but undeniably he's he's involved and um, it, it impacted him. So we have his own testimony, right? He famously said in an interview, "If the discipline and punish has any good ideas, it came from the Jeep." Uh, that's his most explicit sort of you know uh, yeah, uh, uh, endorsement of that. Um, he says in the book itself, right, famously in its opening um, pages that. Um, I learned about what he would eventually call the microphysics of power in that book. Uh, I learned about that from the material existence that was exposed by the recent uprisings in the prisons. He's talking about the French prisons of 1971 and 72. Um, he doesn't mention at that point that he was involved mobilizing and supporting those uprisings, but that's in fact the case. So we now know that he was not talking about that as a kind of I intellectual was sitting in a chair someplace reading about these events. He was on the streets outside supporting them uh, and mobilizing and disseminating, popularizing uh, the the events as they were going on. Um, if I if I remember the chronology correctly, he was supposed to have so to back up a moment. He lectured in 71, 72 on penal theories and institutions. He lectured in 72, 73 at the Collège on uh, penal power. So uh, penal society or, or uh, disciplinary, or, sorry, um, carceral society. Um, he, 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 he was lecturing, obviously, at that level of it. But that seems to be provoked, right, by his involvement with the Jeep. That's pretty, pretty clear because the prior... Uh, opening lecture course was on the will to knowledge, right? And did not have anything to do with this other than it did highlight this notion of inquiry and, and investigation. Uh, importantly, there as a form of truth telling. Um, but um, what I think you see is that in 73, 74, Foucault already has a full draft of, a uh, complete draft of Discipline and Punish uh, complete. He holds it, right, for a year because he doesn't want it to be seen simply as his, so to speak, Jeep book or his book from the prison experience. He wants to put a bit of time and distance between them. So when he publishes it in 75, right, he does note this, that he's learned learned about this material existence from them. And just to, to go back to the overarching question about, you know, what's to say for Foucault's development? I mean, that's clearly what's impacting the, the, the move from a focus on discourse and dis, discursive practice, which is what the archaeology of knowledge, even the order of, of discourse in the inaugural lecture at the Collège de France is still about those questions. Um, to being about disciplinary practices or practices of power more generally. And the way of thinking about them in, a, in this diffuse, 
uh, rather than power being simply domination and control, but it being a way of shaping and molding one's conduct, a, 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 a power born out of gesture rather than out of control, uh, I think is really, really, you know, theoretically significant, theoretically significant at the theoretical level for him in rethinking what he understood by power, what he understood that to mean. He famously says in um, 73, when he walks out of Attica, having uh, toured Attica in, in 73, that was the first time he had you know, technically been inside a prison. He was not inside the prisons in 71, 70 through 72. Um, he had previously worked early in his in his career in a psych- psychiatric uh, lab that was affiliated with uh, a prison, but he did not go in the prison uh, terribly much in itself um, early on. But he says in 73, walking out of Attica, I, I did not realize that power could be productive until I saw it like this. You know, Foucault scholars often take that to mean, oh, well, he walked into Attica with a view about power that was repressive, and he walks out and says it's productive. I don't think that's true, right? That's one of the things that I really uh, learned from this. I think that he learned that that's really marks the culmination of an insight that had long been festering, for lack of a better term, in what he was learning from um, his interaction with the Jeep and seeing how power is not about simply incarceration, right? Captured in that sense. Mm-hmm. But it's about, you know, do you have access to toilets? Do you have access uh, to news? Do you have, you know, heat? Do you have beds? Uh, those kind of very material things that at that micro level right, work to shape and mold a body, right? And that kind of material bodily politics then becomes central for him in a way that it had not obviously before uh, in any of his works, really. Yeah, it's interesting how Foucault sort of explains or sets up this moment in his own life, um, kind of in process, like as, as he's going through it and as he starts getting interviewed and a little bit later about his involvement with the Jeep, you know, some interviewers are like, this seems really different from what you've been doing. And he says, good, yeah. <laughs> it should. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. This is a shift, right? You should, this this is something that, that he experiences as a shift. And um, one of the, one of the things you do, you have to think about what's happening in the 1960s for him. You know, he puts out, you know, History of Madness, Raymond Roussel, uh, Birth of the Clinic, Order of Things, Archaeology of Knowledge. So if you've had that kind of past decade, um, it's perhaps not surprising that he he's, he says he's, he's, he's meeting 1970 with what he calls um, experiences a lassitude of the literary thing. He just says this is like... I, what am I doing with this thing called books, right? What am yeah. I, what am I doing buried in, in um, histories, right? And languages and, and, and everything else. What, what really is that? There's something frustrating about it to him, despite the incredible success, obviously that he's, that he's having. And so he says he, he turned, well, I should quote this, which I love to quote. Um, he talks about his frustration specifically with uh, university yakking and book scribbling. I just can't get enough of that line. But um, so he's turning from yeah. that. He really wants something different. And he wants something not only different, but he wants something transformative. And he says, I needed to be engaged, he said, with effective work. Effective mm-hmm. work. Something that does something. And um, so he gets, he kind of throws himself into the Jeep without a whole lot of kind of theorization or explanation. And mm-hmm. Sixu actually recalls in the, in the interview, she says, you know, I remember way down the road as we're involved in the Jeep, right? Way, way, way down the road. He calls a meeting and he says, you guys, we should think about what we're doing. <laughs> <Sort of. laughs> we, should, we should do a little bit of this, like 
what is this really about, right? A little bit of theoretical reflection. That is not his first step. That is not, it's not going in here. I've got an assessment of what prisons are about. I've got an assessment of what we need to do. I've got to, you know, that's not how it begins at all. It's yeah. let me throw myself into this. I need something different and I need to learn something that I, without myself at the helm. And, and that's, and that's part of what the Jeep ends up offering for him, I think. And then I'll just mark, um, one of the relationships that he built was with, um, Liv Rosé, who is a, a, was incarcerated for a long time and then ended up coming out and being involved in the in the Jeep and then leading the Prisoners Action Committee, which is the the group that uh, the Jeep gave it kind of handed the baton to. But Liv Rosé, um, his relationship with Foucault was truly friendship, and this is described in an interview I do with um, Nicolas Droke that's recently out in Foucault Studies. But it's it's a real friendship, and the friendship is. Uh, kind of an everyday, let's hang out kind of friendship, and but it's also clearly productive for both of them. So if you read Livrose's book, which comes out in 1973, so this is as the Jeep's wrapping up, as the cap is taking over, he writes this book called From Prison um, to Revolt. And much of it is to to insist that society produces delinquency. And if you're a Foucauldian, <laughs> and you've read The End of Discipline and Punish, that you know, that rings, that rings in a particular way. And so I want to just highlight that, that particular friendship and, and the, and how we should see this, that book as coming out of friendships, right? Discipline and punish as coming out of friendships, not only activism or an activism that is driven by um, relationality as well. And I just, I just, uh, under, uh, recall, I I was really struck where you say, you know, said Foucault was learning something. Right, and that's to me, um, and I won't uh, sidetrack us on this. It's a separate conversation uh, of your own work, Perry. But interest and curiosity, and it, it does strike me how rarely we talk about major intellectuals learning. What we talk about is major intellectuals, you know, filtering and synthesizing, or even just springing forth with a particular kind of vision. And so, underscoring that sense of learning, uh, it strikes me as you know, it's one thing to talk about. The trajectory of Foucault's thought, Deleuze, Guattari, Sisu, you know, all the people we've talked about and who are in the book. Um, but maybe also suggests this you know, different sort of feel. What does it mean to, to catch these moments in which major intellectuals learn? And when they learn, you know, not out of what was that, the yakking of, of university libraries or you know um that's a I, I love that. That's a great quotation. I'm glad you read that out. Um, but I'm curious. It, uh, how well you think the politics, poetics, ethics, uh, vision, however one wants to phrase it, how well you think it travels? Now, of course, we're talking about something that is 50 years ago, and so that's its own kind of question. But it's also a project that took place in a very specific place, France. Right, with a very specific moment with its predecessors and aftermaths and so forth. And just generally as a as a thinker, I'm always curious about the question of how theory travels, you know, whether it's uh, across uh, national boundaries, across time, across race, gender boundaries, and so forth. How well do you think? You know, we're talking in 2022, abolition prison abolition to prison reform to all sorts of ways of thinking about these very similar issues. I think of just the ignorance that 
we have in the United States about what a prison is really like, for example. Um, you know, how well you think what happens in this book, what happened in G travels to both the United States and our particular racial economy, um, and also just across time. I think one answer there is to say it was already traveling. So I, I, I do I want to emphasize well, the Attica the, example, yeah, for sure. Certainly with the Attica example, and then also with the third intolerable pamphlet um, that the Jeep put out, which is and um, called the Assassination of George Jackson. So it specifically addresses um, it's it's edited the the pamphlet itself is edited by Jean Genet, which is itself interesting and an intellectual and and formerly incarcerated person who we should also talk about. Um, but he. He really wanted to pull together what was a connection, right? To build a connection between what is happening um, in France with the Jeep and what's happening in the U.S. Uh, with prison resistance movements there at the time. And I'll just flag something on the back cover. So he says part part of what part of what they all wanted to do with this particular pamphlet was to was to kind of make explicit why it is that the U.S. wanted to or needed to kill George Jackson. Um, but also, why did they want to kill, and this is a quote, why did they want to kill this death? And it's, it's literally tué, right? To kill this death. And I remember pausing over the, I bring this up because of the translation question, right? On the one hand, if you were just to give me that line and to say translate this appropriately, I wouldn't say to kill this death. I would say to silence this death, to suppress this death, to cover over this death. That's much more idiomatically appropriate. But to kill this death is necessary because there's a reverberation throughout the pamphlet that um, folks say, you know, George Jackson lives, right? And he lives because his voice has been sort of taken up and lifted up and given new life, like being able to survive um, in in that kind of work. And I think I think part of, so he says, um, Jeunet says, um, Though dead, they, George Jackson and others, right, who are, who are killed in prison, will um, live among us. What's interesting is to pause here and to think also about, uh, there's an interview, there's two interviews with George Jackson that are translated into the French for this particular pamphlet, which is also interesting. Yeah. Um, in one of them, he says, nothing but death can stop our movement. Jackson says this. And Genet is insisting, actually, not even death, right? Because as long as you don't kill the death, as long as you let the death live, um, the movement cannot be stopped. And I think that resonance today, when I think about, for instance, the Say, say Her Name um, hashtag campaign, right? That's an insistence that a death not be killed, that it live. Um, so I think that, that particular thought of what it means for a death to live and how that might be central to resistance movements that are specifically involved in kind of police repression and, and, and prisons. That seems incredibly prescient for, for this moment. Um, Kevin? Yeah, no, I, just to, just oh, to yeah. comment on that, I, I think that that idea of killing a death is the productive, the productivity, like intellectual and political like things we can do with that phrase are just astonishing. I mean, one of the things it does, you know, if I can just, cause I'm thinking about travel and um, 
you know, a notion like necropolitics, which one of the th- one of the suffocating aspects of Mbembe's articulation of of necropolitics is that it con- that essay concludes with you know the martyr is just a reiteration of necropolitics. But this idea of the way death stays alive, or the idea of killing a death, I think opens up this sort of dimension of necropolitical. Um, of, of a ne- necropolitical ontology that becomes necropolitical action, necropolitical activism, necro uh, mobilization uh, and activism within necropolitics. That isn't a rehearsal of that because what you're talking about is not martyrdom. It's something very different. Right. And I think that's really important. I mean, I, I think it is, I mean, that would be like its own discussion, right? What is martyrdom and what is this notion that Genet is, is, is underscoring and George Jackson and George Jackson is a fascinating bridge to that travel of theory because the relevance of George Jackson uh, and, you know, say her name, as you said, that, that establishes a really deep continuity and that Jeep already had George Jackson as one of the sort of centerpieces of thinking about what they were doing and doing what they were doing is itself. Um, uh, I think that changes geography and time in really fascinating ways all by itself. Kevin, what, what did you have to say? Yeah, I, just, uh, I think those absolutely fascinating um, uh, ways of thinking about that myself. So I just want to affirm those, but uh, I just wanted to talk about, the other two pamphlets for a moment and the way in which they, the other two of the other pamphlets, the, the way they impact the way we would think about this, even to this day. So the, the question of how does theory travel? Um, the, the second um, intolerable pamphlet, I think is really interesting in this regard because it's, it's an investigation of what was proposed at the time to be a few, a prison of the future, right? So a fully reformed, fully humane, whatever that would mean, a uh, prison, uh, 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 that we want to uh, have people in. This is where we want to move, right? And the interesting thing about that investigation that they conduct there is they find that it, despite it, its claim to be humane, is it's precisely just as intolerable as any other prison, right? Because the materiality of life within that uh, incarceration, which they report out, um, is 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 has its own unique distinctive yes but nonetheless still intolerable nature of its of uh, of incarcerated life um and so that to me speaks to uh this uh issue we're still confronting which is uh we push for abolition but what's pushed back is well tell us what the reform would be then tell us how we would have a a a, a, a reformed prison life and and the jeep's point always was our purpose is not reform we're not advocating for reform. We're advocating for the exposure of what this incarceration is to get us, as Foucault would ultimately put it, to problematize, right, the very carceral logic under which we live. That's really what the point of that was. So he called it, Foucault famously called it, uh, an act of problematization, right, to use his own term for this. So uh, of rendering problematic that which is accepted and taken for granted. And I think you see that already in the second um, intolerable volume challenging the very notion of uh, what purports to be a reformed institution, even in its reform status, bears the marks of the carceral logic that we're still finding intolerable. So that's that, that on that side. The fourth pamphlet, I think, is really interesting in this regard as well. It's about suicides, called Prison Suicides, and it plays on the, obviously, the French, but you can get it in English as well, of that double nature of it's both suicides that happened in prison, but also suicides that happened because of the being imprisoned. Um, and um, what I think is really interesting 
there, among many things that are interesting there, is the way in which they say in the introduction, the authors, uh, the editors, I should say, of that volume, say in, 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 in their introduction, is that the reason why we're looking at, at um, suicides is not just because they take place at a higher rate within the prison population. That's true, and we're looking at that. But that's not the, the only reason we're looking at it. We're looking at it because that looks to be the ultimate way of resisting prison life itself, that they saw no other way out, no other way of contending and resisting this form of life. Um, and so they eventually took their own lives, not just to say we're exhausted and we can't take it anymore, but as an ultimate act of political resistance itself. And that as they said, just to connect up to what we were saying earlier about the say her name uh, and not letting death be killed. Uh, one of the reasons why they want to preserve, right, those and, and document and preserve those um, suicides, uh, and that had not been done at the time, right? The, that kind of um, documentation of how many suicides had actually happened. The Jeep actually took that upon themselves. They didn't have documentary sources beyond themselves. It wasn't part of the, the prison apparatus at that time to even document how many uh, suicides were happening. They documented them. They got it right, save for one. I think they missed it by one um, for the official uh, record when you go back and look at it. But regardless, uh, their point in doing so was to say, these deaths have to live on, right? These deaths have to have a legacy because we can't blind ourselves to what incarceration does, right? And one of the things they document in that, in that fourth pamphlet, obviously through the letters of HM, is one of the things that it does to people is it literally um, makes you mad, right? It, it renders your ability to be sane. Uh, yeah. it, it shreds your ability to be sane. And what you see documented in those letters of HM is precisely someone descending into psychosis, right? Descending into uh, that form uh, of madness. And um, they wanted to document that because they're saying that's, that's not just happening to an individual, in isolation that's happening to an individual within a certain kind of form of life that um provokes that kind of response uh, yeah. to it so i think that that's really significant that those letters are there so you have the direct testimony so to speak uh, of that yeah. happening that's that's the family of hm saying we want this to be public right we want people to yeah. know about what our what our loved one was suffering to go back to the intimate side of this. It really does uh, speak to that. But also they do an interview with the psychiatrist who was in charge of the prison system uh, after this and mention HM's uh, uh, death, uh, suicide in this context. And that exposes the kind of, you know, inability of the carceral system to be able to even deal with such a thing as that. And hence the way in which it really challenged it. (laughs) Yeah, HM is really one of these figures that Kevin and I keep returning to. Um, So you talked about the projects that could be written, and I'm hoping there's a lot about HM. Um, Not only because of um, just the power of these letters, but also because I really see him as a a queer crip figure. So he he committed suicide after being um, put in solitary confinement, certainly not for the first time, but put in solitary confinement um, for being read as seen as homosexual. Mm-hmm. But he's also, you know, he repeatedly talks about his own life and, and sort of his own struggles. And he, you know, experiences depression. He experiences anxiety, serious PTSD. He talks about having this bum hand where he, you know, he injured it and then it was partially fixed. And, but they left a pin in it and he still has this pin. They keep saying they're going to get it out. And, you know, his he talks about the scrawl of his own um, sort of 
handwriting, and he and he repeatedly suspects himself of of developing or having schizophrenia. So, the, and this is just like threads throughout the the text. But he also claims, and this is something I've recently written just a little bit about. But he he kind of takes on the figure of John the Baptist, and he says, "I am crying in the wilderness, the wilderness of this carceral space," to say this shouldn't be right to kind of accuse justice of injustice um but also to consistently testify to the kind of the fugitive intimacies he's able to build within this carceral wilderness um so i just think he's i think he's a fascinating figure and i think it's important not just to think of the prison as producing um a compromise of mental health and physical health, um, but also to think about it as Kevin was saying, its inability to actually support people with disabilities and the ways in which so often um, folks with disabilities are simply sort of funneled into incarcerated conditions, whether that's in the prison or other institutional spaces. Um, so there's just a complexity there. That there's a lot, a lot more to do, and I think it's very present, present, or prescient uh, today. Given, um, for example, the Appen Bush's new book on um, uh, decarcerating disability. I mean, there's there's a lot of really great connections that are being built between disability studies and, and carceral studies, um, and there's some there's some moment of that history here to be returned to. So let me ask then a, a final question, and and in some ways that's <clears throat> that's a. Uh, you know, one one response to it, you know, physically, you know, this isn't a, a a serious book. I mean, it's a lot of pages, it's a lot of information, a lot of documentation. As you all have talked about, this was a long term project. This was not a let's do this in a few months or meet a couple times in the summer and put something together. It's a massive project for you all individually. It's a massive imposing book has so much and what you were just talking about i mean these kinds of projects growing out of it would be just so fabulous for uh the world of ideas and 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 the sort of politics and ethics uh that come out of it but i'm curious for you all after i mean when you publish something it's really monumental so much time and so significant sort of where both of you individually um you know where does this book take you post-publication Kevin? Uh, I was going to let you go first, Perry. I think I went first last time. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so let me just speak, because I appreciate that that uh, appreciation of the amount of time. It took us, as we mentioned, 10 years uh, uh, to bring this book uh, out. And um, I, Perry, you'll remember this. We were sitting on Zoom uh, two years ago now. It seems forever since the pandemic. But two years ago now, we literally sat on Zoom. and shared the texts uh, of the entire volume. And it took us hours, I forget how many hours, uh, to literally go through each page and make sure, and this was like you know, final page proofs uh, uh, draft, uh, to go through each page and make sure it was what we, that the corrections had been made, the things we wanted to end were in, and the placement was right, and all the sort of exhausting things you do to get a manuscript ready for final publication. And um, we, Perry, you can speak to this if you want, but I thought at that point, I thought, we've invested a lot in this that wasn't in the original document itself. What I mean by that is there's a huge amount of editorial apparatus that we added uh, to this stuff to make it precisely. So hopefully it will be uh, of use to others in the future um, that I, 
it's a real achievement. I want to I want to credit Perry here because he did so much of the work of bringing that editorial apparatus to bear on this, and we added a chronology and all an introduction, and all sorts of other stuff to try to contextualize this. We we really were to go back to something you asked earlier, John. Um, we wanted this to be a document that people could use, right? Use in a variety of different ways for historical research, for history, for ideas, for practical purposes, and everything in between all that. But we knew that the only way it would work to have a chance of doing that was to provide some of the context that's not obvious on the page. Because like every activist organization, they weren't doing their own footnotes, right? They weren't doing their own editorializing around what they were doing. They were doing right? They were busy doing. And they weren't saying, well, here's actually what this report we're talking about is, or here's what this event, significant event. So we had to fill all this in and we had to do chronology and other sorts of yeah. things to, to make that, that, that stuff work. But what I hope, what, what that's done for me sort of in my, in my own uh, uh, intellectual journey and career going, going forward is it's helped me contextualize this very rich period in Foucault and others' lives. Um, intellectual journeys in particular, and to try to get, I think, some insight on them. So for myself, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do now is to further talk about, I've done a little bit of this already in writing in publications, but uh, try to put together a book on Foucault's methodology. So obviously this archaeological methodology, this genealogical methodology, or it's impacted by uh, this period immensely. What do we, He was, in, uh, you know, Along in this period, Foucault was trying to think through what is genealogical method, right? So uh, that's part of this as, as well. I'm not making the claim that the Jeep was genealogical. That's, in fact, what I don't want to claim. What I want to claim is that it informs how you do genealogy, right? That's yeah. the interesting thing from it. What is the history of the present mean, so forth and so on, those kinds of things. So I'm trying to do that. But also, in addition to that, I'm trying to explore, and we talk about adjacent projects. So this is kind of grown out of our research in, in, in in, in this in this archive um, is the connections between and we were just mentioning this but I'm trying to explore it a bit further the connections between the Jeep and uh, the Black Panthers in particular the Black Panthers in particular through George Jackson but through other Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver this whole sort of uh, range of discussions that was going on uh, there because it's clear that this is in pamphlet three and intolerable three um, that the Jeep was learning from and very aware of the debates not just sort of the the myth the mythos around the Black Panthers, but actually the internal debates between Cleaver advocating for a much more uh, violent insurrectionist uh, 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 model and Newton saying, no, what we need to do is get the survival programs up and running. We need health and well-being and people need to eat their morning breakfasts and students need to be taken care of, those sorts of things. And Jackson really trying to think about the integration of those two, right? Yeah. Jackson is a figure who says, surprisingly, right, we don't just need violent insurrection for violent insurrection's sake. He critiques the weathermen, right, famously uh, uh, in, in precisely this, in this regard. He says what we need is, is we need military leadership for the survival of these uh, uh, programs, the survival of these uh, uh, bread and butter every day, health care delivering, meal delivering programs, so that this actual uh, 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 group, this actual part of society that's been marginalized can find its own agency, right? Can can have a chance at having its own agency. And it can't have that unless it's protected. And part of that protection will be armed protection, right? So this is Jackson's real innovation in that regard. And it's it's amazing that the Jeep is aware of this. It's clear in Intolerable 3. They talk about this. They uh, uh, invoke this distinction between Cleaver and, and Newton and Jackson's role in that. And that how that impacted what they did. So for my own 
So if I'm trying to understand in particular how that impacted Deleuze, because Deleuze cites Jackson's line repeatedly. It's in Annie Oedipus, this line about, I may flee, but when I do, I'm looking for a weapon. Right, That line yeah. that he took over from George Jackson's Soledad mm-hmm. Brother, uh, the letters uh, volume that uh, Jackson published. Uh, and it's a different French translation. I talk about that. We can talk about that. But um, they cite that in Annie Oedipus. They cite it again in Thousand Plateaus without the Jackson reference. Deleuze talks about it all the time. He references it constantly. It becomes a kind of revolutionary dictum or model for them. And so it's a it's a useful way into what does it mean to think about resistance and revolution and uh, more broadly practices of contestation more generally. So, yeah. I also think, I hope for the future of the book that it's um, an injunction to folks to think more deeply about the relationship between their own theorization and their own practice. So whether they're academics yeah. or not, right? Yeah. We all make sense of the world in some way. And we also all lead our lives in, in some way. Um, what is the relationship between those two and what informs those two things? Um, I hope it also invokes some attention to what, what, where are the silences today? So it might very well be uh, the prison still. Uh, and yet I think part of what the Jeep is doing is not just to say, pay attention to the fact that prisons are a black box at that time, but what other black boxes should we be noticing, yeah. right? Um, what what else sort of deserves attention? And there's an attunement to that or an attun- attunement as a way of life there that I think the Jeep invites. Um, and I think the other thing is to think about what, how we, how we actually do our projects. So my, my next, one of the things I'm working on right now is another book project, but it's, trying to do this impossible um, theory plus archival work plus interview work um, and to tell the kind of a story about transactivism in the university. And the more I do it, the more um, frustrating and impossible it feels, but also the more I feel as though one couldn't do justice to this story without all those pieces, without the theory, mm-hmm. without the archives, without the interviews. And I think the Jeep is also inviting those kind of, let's revisit what it is that we conceptualize of as academic or theoretical work and what its touchstones are and what gets to play a part there. Um, and what and the, the level of the number of friendships that have been built for me with this transactivist project is, is um, kind of flooring. And so I also think, what are the friendships that we're building that inform our work? rather than the friendships necessarily that we also have to just kind of escape the work. But yeah. I think there's something, there's some, where, where is it, where is it grounded, right? In those, those it, between spaces. Um, that seems to also be an invitation of the Jeep. Well, thank John, you. John, if I could just add one other thing to that, I think it's yeah. significant in what Perry was saying there. I just want to highlight this and go back to something that Perry mentioned earlier, particularly from Sixu's, um, the interview with Sixu. And that is, we also want this, this, this collection to also uh, make available to scholars uh, to, to be able to see what the black boxes of the Jeep were. Uh, yeah. And I think one of the most significant of those is gender, right? Uh, and so among others, right? So uh, there's no, there's very little attention to immigrant uh, analyses here. So let's be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Disability is inflected from here, but not theorized or not 
prominent here in that kind of way. So there's all sorts of black boxes, if you want to use that term. I think that's a useful one here to talk about the, the Jeep as well, right? And just to, just to conclude, uh, uh, Perry did a wonderful analysis of the cover photo, right, for precisely this reason. So we picked what we took. We knew we were going to probably we resisted this for a long time, but we knew in the end we were eventually going to have to have Foucault on the cover, right? So for it to work, for it to be on academic shelves, we knew, you know, you're going to have to have Foucault on the cover. I was always adamant. I do not want the Foucault and the bullhorn. Everyone's seen this. The Foucault and the bullhorn uh, uh, cover because that's, you know, he's standing next to Sard. It's not a Jeep uh, 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 activist uh, uh, event. So, you know, I didn't want that one, right? Because that's so out there. I wanted one that was sort of striking. Uh, and we worked a long time and had to work really hard. It required emissaries all over France to, to make this happen, actually, to have that photo on the front that you see with, with Foucault reacting. This is at a Jeep event, reacting to the police. So you're looking over the shoulders of the police uh, and Foucault is, is, is reacting to them, yelling at them, confronting them. And Perry did a wonderful analysis of the two women who are on each of Foucault's side. And I think with that kind of contextualization, that kind of recognition of, look, those aren't just you know, bystanders. Those are activists in the Jeep. One of them is Deleuze's wife. She was heavily active in the Jeep on a very practical level. The other one uh, did subsequent research, was a sociologist at the time, did subsequent research on precisely these issues and heavily active in the Jeep as well. And those legacies would be lost, right? And so yeah. um, that kind of contextualization needs to go on about the Jeep as well. We need to find its black boxes and explore those as well. Yeah, do you want to say something about the photograph? It is a, a stunning photograph. And I'm it glad is, you avoided yeah. the bullhorn too. <laughs> yeah, I mean I was I was reticent um because the two women are not uh, so Fanny Dillas and and um uh Claude Liskia are not um speaking in it. And I and I thought, uh, you know, do we have to have another dude who's like leading everything and then there's silent women on either side? Um, which was a certain frustration. I said, well, at least they have to be able to have spoken in some way by their work being represented in a, in a um, description of the, of the photograph. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad at least that we were able to do that. But I do think that this broader question about when we think about activism right now and activists and especially young activists, I think um, we can get so caught up in um, thinking that we've got the answer and we've got it right and that we see through everything, you know, that we've, we've finally parted the veil, whatever it is. And, 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 and we need to fight for the thing that we see that all of that is true. And it, all of that is a real element of activist work and often kind of theoretical work too. But I think, um, this call to attend to what we still are not attuned to, what we still do not see about our own practice, about our own perspectives, the the forces and people and histories and lineages that may be excluded from what we, we're conceptualizing the world of as right now and what it could be and what it has been. That humility has to stay in the moment of activism and in the moment of theorizing as much as we are sort of compelled by by, by a confident assessment or this must sure. be um, this must be treated. So I do, I do, yeah, I do really like that, that there's a bit of a, a self-critique in the book as we try to bring forward what, what those particular women were contributing. And then also the, the interview with, um, Ellen Sixu. Fantastic. Well, thanks both of you, Perry and Kevin. I really appreciate you all taking the time and this is super fascinating as a conversation. And I think is, uh, 
you know, really highlights both what the book accomplishes and what it promises. And I'm really glad that we were able to draw that out over the last uh, hour plus. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, John.